all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shepna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Azav, the recorder, went out to him. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you building this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you only speak empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now, you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Ezekiah removed, saying to Jerusa Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar. Come now and make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you have enough riders to put on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and to destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Jobah said to the field commander, Please, speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of all these people on the wall. But the commander said, Was it only to... And probably really loud. But the commander said, Was it only to your master and, and you that my master sent me to say these things? And not to the men sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their own filth and drink their own urine? Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig, fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says, The Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Assyria and Arpad? Where are the gods of Savarphim? Where are they? have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply, because the king had commanded, Do not answer them. Then Eliakim and Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shepna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Azaph, the recorder, went to Hezekiah, 
with their clothes torn, and they told him what the field commander had said. Okay, and we'll read the second part after I do the first part. Okay. Okay, guys, um, I'm good. She just loves reading, eh? If you don't stop her, we'll hear the entire Bible if we don't stop. Thanks, Chris. I'll call you up again in a little while. Okay, so um, just felt that we needed to look at this whole idea of how to overcome the deceiver. And you'll be surprised as we talk about it today how there are things happening in your life where you're falling for the enemy's tricks and you could so easily overcome them. So let's start at Isaiah 36. To begin with, guys, here's what's happened. eh? Um, This guy called Sennacherib Sennacherib had come against um, Israel and he had taken 31 cities captive. And if you go to 2 Kings 18, you'll see that Hezekiah had already made compromises with him. So if you go to 2 Kings 18, 2 Kings 18, you'll see that this guy had already scared the heebie-jeebies out of Hezekiah. 2 Kings 18, Verse 15. Look at what it says there. Look at what Hezekiah did, eh? Starting at verse uh, 14. Uh, and Hezekiah, king of Judah, this is Second Kings 18, 14 onwards. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. I mean, he hadn't done anything wrong, eh? But he's already started compromising. This is usually how we work life out. As soon as threats come, as soon as we are intimidated, as soon as things begin to go wrong, instead of taking up a stance, because that's the only way to sometimes overcome stuff, he goes to this point of saying, uh, I have done wrong, withdraw from me, whatever you impose on me, I will bear. This is a king of Israel, eh? Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And then he goes on to say, And the king of Assyria required that Hezekiah, the king of Judah, give him 300 talents of silver, which is like a whole lot of money, and 30 talents of gold, which is also a whole lot of money. And Hezekiah gave him, look where he got the silver from. Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple or the house of the Lord and all the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord, from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent Tartan, another guy called Rabsaris and Rabshakeh, with a great army to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. So here is a guy who facing circumstances, and there's nobody in this church at present who is not facing some circumstance of some sort. And our usual tendency is to be so overwhelmed that instead of running to God, we want to make things okay by pacifying whatever happens. It could be sickness, it could be relatives, it could be uh, a lack of security. I don't know what your situation is, but there's nobody here who isn't facing a situation. And some of us have already compromised. As in, because of what's being imposed on us, we've said, okay, take what you want. I'll resign and accept your condition. This is the bane of Christianity, eh? We find it so hard to say to people in the world, 
our God reigns because it doesn't look like he reigns because my life is in shambles. And the whole intent of today's teaching is time to take a stance, man. Not because you got strength. Your muscles are worth nothing. But because you got a God who knows how to roll up his right sleeve and show his mighty right arm. And he actually says stuff like that. David would often say, God, roll up your sleeve and show your right arm. Time to do that, huh? Otherwise, we'll die and go to heaven, but live miserable lives that people will look at and say, your God reigns, really? Not by looking at you. So Hezekiah had already compromised, and then... um, he depleted his resources. Once you begin to agree to what the enemy wants to impose on you, know that you may have temporary peace, but it will deplete your resources. So you'll get some kind of uh, peace, as in, sure, I'm not troubled as much, but you'll find that within years, your resources are being depleted. You'll have hardly anything left, eh? And so he sends his representatives And the enemy sends his representative. The enemy sends three guys. One guy, and they all had funny names like Rab Shake and Rab Saris. At least one guy was Scottish. His name was Tartan. And so he turns up and they stand there. And he wasn't Scottish, by the way, just in case you thought that was true. And then you've got the guys from the king's side who are Eliakim. Now, guess who Eliakim was? In Isaiah 22, verse 20, it says, Eliakim had the keys of the entire kingdom in his hand. So much so that God prophesies over Eliakim, making him a type of Christ, and he says, what Eliakim shuts, no one can open, and what Eliakim opens, no one can shut. He was actually talking about Jesus, but he uses Eliakim as an example in Isaiah 22, 20. So these guys go meet with the representatives of the enemy, and let's see what happens. The first deception, the first deception. Basically, look at the deceptions that happen, eh? and guard against them in your life. The first deception is this, in verse uh, 4, uh, verse 5, uh, Isaiah 36, verse 5. I'm reading from verse 4. And the Rabshakeh said to them, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? So the first thing he attacks, the first deception is Do you think your words will help? Do you think your words will help you win? The answer is yes. But the first thing the enemy tries to do with our lives is he'll try to have you speak words that do not agree with God, but agree with the enemy's intentions. It's a deliberate deception, eh? The first thing he's doing is, do you think your words carry any weight? Do you think your words are strategy enough to defeat us? Do you think you can make war with words? But here is the truth, guys. And may you never, and may I never forget this. Jesus undid the devil only with words. In all three temptations. uh, Not in three. In two of the three temptations, Jesus used words. We, have, we don't realize the weight and the importance of words in, in strategic dismantling of the enemy. Words are used by Satan to intimidate you. 
Our words are used by Christians to fight back, but we don't, eh? Make sure that whenever your situation is really bad, begin to use words that God has said over your situation. Jesus did this. If Jesus did this, surely you and I need to do this. And the first thing Satan challenges is, do you think your words will matter? The answer is yes, but the guys keep quiet. Do you think your words matter? Of course your words matter, especially when they agree with God. Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Never go short on words. Proverbs 18 verse 20. It says that according to your words, you will either produce good or you will produce death. One or the other. We won't go there today. But that's the first deception. The second deception. The second deception is in verse uh, 8. Verse 8. It says there, starting at verse 7, But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is, he, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Guys, the second deception is whenever you're in a situation facing things, Satan will have you think that your life is so full of faults that God won't side with you. How many times do we go through this? Where you, where you want victory, where you want something and you want to overcome, and you hear this voice in your head saying, hey, but you were jealous last week. You um, lied this week. You cheated on your taxes um, four months ago. Um, you were angry two days ago. And as these voices begin to come in, you don't really think that God will be on your side. And here the enemy is saying to Hilkiah and the others, hey, you really think God's going to be on your side after what you guys did? I mean, you did remove some places of worship from the high places. It's a, it was a good thing, but he plans doubt. Guys, every time this happens, go back to this simple, this simple equation. He is my father. A father does not abandon his children. If he was only God, maybe you and I would have a problem. But because he is God and father, because he's a God who is just and holy, but because he's a father who's compassionate. Know this, that it doesn't matter how full of faults you are. God will both correct your faults and your father will show you compassion and will not abandon you. Got to hold them together, eh? You remove the fatherhood of God and you got nothing, man. You got a God that you'll find in any religion. Every religion has a God who can exert some power, but no religion has a God who is a father. If Christianity, if Christians believe in God as God only and not a father, they're not believing in Yahweh. They're believing in some God whose heart, first and foremost, is that of a father. That's the beauty of our God, eh? He's a father. And if you can't approach him as a child, then you need to work on your relationship with him. This is why, I mean, I never had to go through, my, I never had to go to my dad through my mom or my sister. I would only use my mom when my dad was upset with me. 
But otherwise, I'd never hesitate to go to my dad. I remember I was telling, I don't know who I was telling. I remember my dad, I knew my dad would uh, be upset with me because I um, didn't turn up for a tuition lesson. And so even that, I remember going, in those days you could whack your kids. So I went, got the stick from above the cupboard, had to stand on my tiptoes, and even that didn't help. So I got a chair, climbed the chair, got the stick. I went to my dad, and as soon as he came home, I said, here's a stick. I didn't go for my tuition. You might as well get it over right now. Go ahead and whack me. I mean, I would approach him even for discipline. And surprisingly, he said, okay, just don't do it again. And I thought, wow. So the second time I did it, I did that again. This time he promptly whacked me. So, <laughs> so <laughs> the thing is, God is a father. God is a father. You, you, if you can't approach him directly, then I need to work on my relationship because something is wrong when a child can't approach his father directly. If you have to approach the dad through the wife, the mother, or the sister, then we haven't grown into that relationship and God is invited. Or the pastor, or a prophet. It's the same principle. So, don't fall for this lie. Eh? This is the second deception. God will correct you where you're wrong, but he won't hold back his help because you are his child. Do not fall for this deception. The third deception. This is so tricky. Eh? He says... Uh, uh, Rab Shakeh says to Israel, hey, guess what? Um, I'll give you 2,000 horses. If you can get soldiers to s- mount these 2,000 horses and fight against us, well, now we got something going. He, one of the things the enemy does is he tries to highlight your inadequacy. Whenever God is going to do something big, Satan has this method of showing you how inadequate you have so that the dream you dream at night evaporates by the morning. Have you noticed how we plan such amazing things at night and are absolutely sure that tomorrow will be the day when we will finally do what we were called to? And come morning, even before you have your first cup of coffee, that dream evaporates because reality hits you. And what is reality? Your inadequacy. And that's the third thing he says. He says, guess what? And, and he puts it so subtly. Eh? He says, let me, let, me sh- let me give you 2,000 horses. And if you can have 2,000 horsemen ride, we'll back off. Because the enemy knew that there was no way they could have mustered up 2,000 horsemen. As you face the future, whatever your situation be, know that one of the reasons fear comes in is because Satan reminds me of my inadequacy. That's the third deception, the deception of inadequacy. The deception of inadequacy. And it happens either through challenge or through sarcasm or through sympathy. Challenge, sarcasm, or sympathy. And this doesn't have to come from the devil. It doesn't come with someone with two horns. It comes from well-meaning people who will remind you how little you have in your pocket, how your granddad died, how your neighbor collapsed, and you'll be convinced that inadequacy will force you to withdraw. The fourth deception. The fourth deception is in verse 10. And he says there, this is is Rabshakeh saying, Moreover, 
Is it without the Lord that I've come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against the land and destroy it. So the fourth deception is, did God really say it? Did God really say it? This is the fourth deception. Did God really say it? You guys okay? Okay. Did you... Any more leaving right now? I mean, there's uh, Michael too. Okay, glad no one else is leaving. <laughs> I mean, is it that bad? Did, did, did God really say, that's a fourth deception, where you'll, you, you know this is what God wants you to do, but now you begin to hear this voice in your head saying, nah, God probably didn't say it. It isn't God. Maybe it's my imagination. What if that woman hadn't you hadn't, decided to say blue w it rocked that guy's life and his son's life man god knows what's going to happen with that life now did god really say it i mean i I this every second week man every time i make a decision a a day later there's this thought that did god really say jacob or is this your imagination we'll talk about how to go about it but these are deceptions did God really say it? Let's take one more and then I'll stop for questions. Guys, the intent is using these methods, Satan tries to intimidate you. Intimidation is the chief weapon of the enemy. The chief weapon of the enemy. You cannot give space till you're intimidated. So intimidation is the chief weapon of the enemy. If I can intimidate you and bring you into a place of fear, now you will come into a place of turmoil and faithlessness, and I have room to work. If I'm the devil, my only intent is, can I intimidate you? Can I show you your future and how disastrous it's going to be? Can I show you others who walked the way you are going to walk and ended up in terrible condition? Can I show you people who went and prayed and nothing happened? Can I show you people who started projects and they lost a lot of money? Can I show you people who trusted God for healing and died? And if I can intimidate you, now I have you in a place where you are faithless and your heart is troubled. And if you are faithless and your heart is troubled, you are good ground for me to sow. If I'm the devil, but I'm not. I mean, this is terrible, man. Look at verse 11. Three of the champions of Israel, look at what they say. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Josh, Joah, sorry, said to Rabshakeh, please speak to your what? Servants in Aramaic. Please speak to your servants. These guys who belong to the king of the universe, Yahweh, are going to Rabshakeh, who's this... who's a general in the enemy's army, and they say to him, please speak to your servants. Guys, it's one thing to have a servant-like heart. It's another thing to become servants to the systems of the world or to satanic intimidation. And it happens every week in our lives. Every week. May you be servants freely, not because someone imposed it on you, but because you decided that I will choose to have a servant heart. But may you never walk as servants before the systems of the world or before intimidation. 
You are not servant. Guys, when I say systems of the world and Satan's intimidation, what do I mean? Anything that does not have its roots in God can make you a servant. Refuse it. Know your legacy and inheritance in your father. He's a good, good father. Resist that which is not coming from him. Because if you don't, then you and I will be mastered by it. How long should I resist it? Jacob, I've been resisting it for two years. Well, then go another year. Remember how many years Israel ended up in slavery, eh? And then when they were free, remember how many years they ended up in slavery again after being free. We are a free people who have to learn how not to think like this. Otherwise, you can roam the desert for another 40 years and die in the desert, not being free while being free. The fifth deception. Hey, the other thing I want to say is, remember, language is what is used to intimidate. Language is the method of intimidation. Language is the method of intimidation. And so that's why these three uh, guys from Israel go and say, hey, could you tell, could, could you please not speak in Aramaic? Could you speak in French? Because our people understand Aramaic. If you speak in French, that would be better. Why? Because they know that language is being used that can frighten people. Guys, whenever you hear language that frightens you, you need to rewrite that same thing in God's logic and language. Whenever you hear things that frighten you, let me give you an example. Let's say you go to the doctor and the doctor says, um, let's, let's say there's a guy called, let's pick a name, Rab Shake, since no one's named Rab Shake here. Let's say there's a guy called Rab Shake. <laughs> and he goes to the doctor and the report comes back saying, Rab Shake, you're going to lose your hair. Your liver is punctured, your nose is bleeding, and um, your knee is buckling. And so that's the diagnosis given by the doctor. And it frightens the Rab out of Rab Shake. And so he's so scared. Now, if Rab Shake became a believer, he'd have to rewrite that. He'd have to rewrite that, not by denying reality, but by saying, I thank God that he has the ability to make my hair follicles rooted in my scalp, that he has the ability to strengthen my knee, that he has the ability to stop my nose from bleeding, and he has the ability to give me a new liver. Because language is the vehicle of intimidation. And if you do not take the language that intimidates and change it into God's logic and language, you will be stuck with the words that have been pronounced over you. This is so critical. And sometimes it's not even what others have pronounced. It's your imaginations, what you have conjured, conjured in your head because of years of environment and background. Years of environment and background. And if you don't start using the language of God to correct it, it will come back every time like a python, that's, like a bear that's come out of hibernation. Any questions before we go on? Any questions?
This is going to be so useful to us here because I have my notes for kingdom prosperity. This just happened two days ago or three days ago. This is going to be so useful to people sitting here. You have no idea. This is a rhema message, eh? Yeah. And I have very little to do with this. I don't even have notes, really. It's all scribbles on my Bible. Go ahead. Any, any questions? I'm just saying, praise God that he's so into us that he knows what we need. Any questions? Any thoughts? Go ahead. Yeah, how do you discern when these deceptions are happening? Every deception is followed by fear, by a desire to take a shortcut and fix whatever is happening, and by a a, a slight displacement of God from the center of my life. So, um, Aaron, just come up for a second, since you're my favorite person in the church nowadays. Yeah. So let's assume he's God. See, I even gave you a... There's no role that's higher, man. Yeah, so let's assume he's God. And now I'm being intimidated by... You haven't brought me any coffee. By Jillian. So, now if I'm being intimidated by Jillian, what happens is, the first thing that happens with any deception is fear enters, because there's a sudden doubt. Once fear enters, uh, there's, there's a need to fix it. So now I'll do anything to fix it. But because I'm a believer and I'm passionate about God, I can't fix things unless I distance God from me. So what I do is I don't abandon God, but I kind of create a quick wall so that he's far enough from me so I can go about fixing stuff. And after I've fixed it, I'll quickly go to him and say, could you please bless what I've just done? How many times have we done that? Where we want to fix something so badly and we don't even ask him for it, we keep him at a distance so that we create room to fix it and after that we say, Father, I hope what I'm doing is off you. Could you please bless it? (laughs) And he doesn't. Thanks, man. Any questions? Okay, next deception. Uh, Deception five is um, he uses majority opinions. Uh, Frightens you through um, majority voices or opinion. So here's what Rab Shakeh do. He says, well, I'm going to shout as loud as I can. And he says, by the way, guys, if you don't listen to me and you go with Hezekiah, here's what's going to happen to you. You will eat your own dung and drink your own urine. That should frighten people. And as soon as they hear it, The intent is to do exactly what the ten spies did in Numbers chapter 13, where the spies went, spied out the land of Canaan, and ten of them came back saying, it's a good land, but there are giants there, and those giants can have us for breakfast. And so it's a really bad idea to go pursuing this promise. Guys, majority voices influence us. And most of these majority voices come from those that are close to us. Relatives, friends, pastors, 
well-meaning, wise people who haven't heard the counsel of God and are close to you. And that other relative of yours, Google. Amazingly, it's a common relative we all have. And so the intent is majority voices frighten us. This is why Paul said something. He said, when I heard God, I did not confer with flesh and blood. I did not confer with flesh and blood. He took a step first and then conferred with flesh and blood. Jesus, same situation. Mark chapter 3, verse 21, or Mark chapter 2. Jesus is preaching, and his preaching is getting so different from what has been preached before that Mary and Jesus' brothers and sisters come to take Jesus away from a meeting. And the words written there are that the mother and the brothers felt that Jesus was out of his mind and they wanted to take him home. That's just nuts, eh? Do not be frightened through majority voices. Sometimes majority voices are all experts and pundits. You want to know what an expert looks like? Go on CNN or Fox. They have them every night. And it's a former someone, former FBI assistant deputy, assistant deputy secretary. And he'll have an expert view on what should be done for the world. So do not listen to experts and pundits. Next one. Deception six. Guys, majority voices can topple God's promise, eh? Majority voices can topple God's promise. As in, God will promise you something, and if you have six people who are close to you who say something different, you will probably lose it. The sixth one is in verse um, 13. Verse 13. And it says there, Then Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in a language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria, Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He will not be able to deliver you. So here's the other thing that happens. The sixth deception is the voice, sorry, the voice of another king. 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 Here's how that happens. Aaron, can you come back? Jillian, can you come for a second? The voice of another king. So let's assume that this is Jesus Christ, as he's the, he's the king of my life. So I don't abandon him because I'm a believer. But now I listen to the voice of another king. All this could change if you bring coffee next week. <laughs> so this is Christ the king who is seated on the throne of my heart. But now what happens is I start listening to the voice of another king. And I allow that king some access but keep the person far enough away. And you'll be surprised at how this is working in your life. That every time certain situations happen, you acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord, but you listen to that other voice. You acknowledge Christ as Lord, but you listen to the voice of another king. So you acknowledge that Jesus Christ heals, but you listen to the voice of another king that says, not always, because I might be trying to teach you a lesson. You acknowledge Christ as a provider, but you listen to the king who says, but lack is good because Paul was poor. Or you acknowledge Christ as king and say, I won't get drunk. But you listen to the voice of another king say, sometimes you need to get drunk to witness to drunkards.
you can both sit because people are watching to see what will happen next. I've run out of stuff. The voice of another king. He sits on a smaller throne, sharing space and counsel. Oh man, I, 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 know, I know kings who sit next to me, eh? next to Christ. You've got to demolish this. Some of you are heading into a new phase in your life. Be it pregnancy, be it retirement, be it the future. You've got to make sure that as you come to that place that there is only one king whose voice you continuously, clearly hear and there will be no other king next to you. It becomes like a ramp that you can take off of. Oh, did you see that crash today on the Indy 500? Okay. Um, next deception. The next deception is um, in verse 16. Verse 14, the second part. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He will not be able to deliver, deliver you. He will not be able to deliver you. So here's the thing. There are times when things are so bad that you will hear this voice say, this one God isn't going to be able to do. You've trusted God and he's come through many times before. But this one, let it be. This is asking too much. And you let go of a promise. That is so sad, eh? This deception basically says that God won't be able to do this, so compromise a little. God can't do this one. So let go. Let's look at the people who could have let go and history would have changed. Moses could have let go. Abraham could have let go. Noah could have let go. Noah waited 120 years. Moses waited 40 years. Um, what's the other guy's name? Abraham waited 25 years. Uh, Paul waited 14 years. All of them could have let go because it was impossible. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth could have let go. Pick the impossible thing that God has said to you. And nurse it like you would nurse Pokemon. Or whatever that, not Pokemon, that, um, there was that uh, little, uh, this was long ago, maybe some of you weren't born there. Yeah, that little egg you had to make sure you took care of it or something. Yeah. Uh, well, anyways, let's forget all that because uh, let me get back to, <laughs> uh, I guess this is what happens when you're not married, you pick on Tamaguchi when you should be picking up on stuff like children. Nurse a promise like you would nurse your own child. Nurse the promise. Because some promises are waiting to happen. And they are world-shattering promises. World-shattering promises. You know, have you heard of David Pawson? No. You've heard of... Uh, Nikki Gumbel, Alpha. Uh, you've heard of John Scott? Very famous writers. These guys have influenced Christianity. There's one guy whose last name is Nash. People don't even know his first name. He lives in England. This is what he used to do. He used to go to some universities 
and pick on the brightest Christian minds and during summer invite them to his cottage and pour into their lives two, three years on. And these guys like Nicky Gumbel, John Stott, David Pawson, all these guys learnt under him. And all of them have established organizations, written books, but nobody knows about Nash. I don't even know his first name. When you nurse promises that are taking time, know that when a promise takes time, it's usually because it will have an earth-shattering effect. I'm not kidding you. I'm not being dramatic. An earth-shattering effect at some point later. Hold on to it, guys. Next one. Deception 8 is uh, the enemy will paint a picture, paint a picture of something that's almost as good, of something almost as good that will bite you in the backside later. Could you finish it? That will bite you in the backside later. So here's what Rav Shaki says to them. Hey, I know you've been promised, uh, I know you've been promised um, land of milk and honey. No, I didn't write that. Yeah, I can't read it either. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's deception eight. Deception eight is the enemy will try to paint a picture of something that's almost as good but ain't the real deal and later on it'll come you come and bite you in the backside he'll paint a picture that looks so idyllic i mean here's what rabshake is saying to israel hey i know you were promised the land of milk and honey but let's settle for honey and oats perhaps you can come and serve me and I'll take care of you. I'll bring you to this beautiful land. And look at how he describes it, eh? Make your peace with me. Come out. Each of you will eat his own vine and each of you will own his own fig tree. Each of you will drink water from his own cistern. Take you, I'll take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. He's painting such an idyllic picture and they will drink out of wells. They will eat figs. But guess what? They'll still be slaves He's painting this beautiful picture of slavery where you eat bread and grain and eat figs, but you'll still be a slave. It's something that is almost as good, but it ain't good enough. Want to see examples in the Bible? And Sarah says to Abraham, I know what God has promised. It's taking far too long. So let me paint you an ideal picture. Why don't you be through Hagar? We're still having teething problems with that. This goes on and on when people like you and I begin to compromise on God's best. As you begin this new phase, and by new phase, I'm saying whatever your phase be. Guys, I was saying some, uh, this to somebody that God always 
has you looking at a horizon and walking towards it. And you need to check this out in your life. Do you have a horizon you're walking towards? What's the horizon? Horizon is a place where land and earth meet. To meet. Do you have a horizon in your life? Where's the other mic? Because this is going on and off. Do you, do you, yeah. Do you have a horizon? Do you, do you, do you, do you want to dance? That's an old song, right? Yeah. Thank God there are some people who still recognize these songs. Otherwise, yeah. So, yeah, guys, you must have a horizon. If you've lost sight of what God has for you in the future, then something is missing. Do you have a horizon? Do you have a place where God is saying heaven and earth will meet there, start walking towards it? I have this for you. It's strange, huh? It doesn't matter whether you're walking the earth or flying at 36,000 feet. You always have a horizon. The only time you lose a horizon is if you go above 60,000 feet. That's when you see the curvature of the earth. So as long as you're here on earth, you will always see a horizon. Do you have a horizon? And I'm not talking about, do you have Christian activity? Do you have a horizon? Do you have something that God has set for you in the future that you're constantly moving towards? Because every few years, God will extend it, eh? That's for another day. And one of the reasons he gives you something to walk towards is so that other people don't tell you to settle down halfway through for something that's almost as good but will later destroy you or ruin you or compromise you or force you to settle. Hey, remember one thing. If I'm challenging you with this, then know that God is challenging you with this. And whenever God challenges, he doesn't challenge so that you feel terrible and go home and sulk and give up chess. It is so that, that's what happened to me. First three guys I played with beat me so bad I gave up chess. Otherwise I'd have been a grandmaster by now. But the point is this, that God, God doesn't challenge you so that you feel terrible and sulk and go and withdraw. God challenges you because if you can be provoked, he can respond. It's, it's weak-kneed people who, when God challenges them, say, ah, oh, this won't work. I guess I'll just go to heaven. No. Every time God provokes, you're supposed to respond so that he can do something with it. That's why I love Jacob. I'm talking about the other guy. I mean, what provocation, man, where he has to wrestle with God for a whole night and won't let go. You think it was easy wrestling with him? Did everything possible to bring that man down and can't? Wouldn't let go, wouldn't let go. And you think, what do you think God was doing? God could have stopped his breath if he wanted. He could have knocked him cold by just touching his temple or something. But instead, he fights with him through the night, provoking him, saying, you want to fight back? Let me see what you got, Jacob. You want to fight back? And they keep doing it till the morning, till in the end... God has to touch the inside of his leg and dislocate his 
um, um, hip socket so that the guy can't fight anymore. God loves to provoke, but he stops provoking when I don't respond. If you're being challenged with all these things, then use this week to go and say to him, you have challenged me, now I am ready, respond. And don't expect it in two minutes. Deception nine. I think we'll just stop with the deceptions and do the remedy next week. <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe yes. Um, D9. Uh, D9. That's in verse... Deception nine is in verse uh, 19. Ah, this is such an old trick. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of your hands? Guys, this is an old, old trick. Huh? It's like, look what happened to Joe. Look what happened to Jane. Look what happened to your granddad and your brother. Look what happened to your dog. And now you think it won't happen to you? Never fall for that, eh? It's an old trick of the enemy. Old deception. You better do this. Because remember what happened to grandmom? So what if it happened to grandmom? You're not your grandmom. You better take this, or you better eat this every day. Because if you don't, uh, I mean, the fear that people put on you based on what had happened to somebody else. Whenever something goes wrong with your body, and people come around who want to help you, but help you without faith, then do not hang out with them. And if I don't have something to say to you that will help your faith, I should be quiet. Don't help people with your faithlessness. So deception nine is, look what happened to so and so. Look what happened to so and so. They are identical. Yeah. Any questions? We'll just stop with the deceptions today. Any questions? Just one more. It's not that I didn't notice that question, but thought I'd let it go. Don't encourage her, guys. Stop smiling, Derek. Your parents are coming next week. <laughs> you have to be on your best behavior, right? Eh? Things could go severely wrong if you rub any of us wrong. Yeah. <laughs> do, we have, do we have ushers in this church? <laughs> we need someone removed from the congregation. And it's not Derek. Yeah. Okay. Next deception is, guys, in 37.10, in uh, Isaiah 37, verse 10, um, Rabshakeh has been defeated, but in verse 10 he says something. 
Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. One of the things that Satan does when he begins to lose a battle is he starts planting seed for future fear. When he begins to see that he's losing a battle because you are beginning to stand in faith, one of the favorite things he does is he begins to plant seeds of fear for the future so that once you've won this victory, you can be reintroduced to fear. This particularly happens in areas where someone's just recovered from a disease and uh, immediately seeds for the future are planted, as in this might wreck her. Or Wikipedia says it comes back every seven months. Or Google says that every nine months uh, this needs to be checked up. Or um, um, Angelina Jolie says that um, her mom died of this, her granddad died of this, so she's going to die of this, so you may die of it too. What does Angelina Jolie have to do with you? So just be aware, eh? Or even when lack goes away and plenty comes... There'll always be this thing. Last time you had plenty. Look what happened. This is going to happen to you again. Seeds for fear are sown for the future when the enemy sees that you are beginning to win. Because he's been around for ages, man. And he knows his time is short. And if he has another year, he's going to work on it because he has no other full-time job. This is all he lives for, to steal, kill, and destroy, and damage your life. This is his passion, his obsession. So do not allow seeds for the future to be planted. The last verse in Isaiah 36 says that, verse 22, 36, 22, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, came to Hezekiah with a cloth stone and told him the words of Rabshakeh. And at the end of the day, what is achieved at the end of chapter 36 is three guys who were sent as representatives coming back depressed, defeated, um, and in disgrace. And if, it, it, sometimes all the devil needs to do is keep you there. Because if he can keep you there, he doesn't need to do anything else. Any questions, guys? I'll stop here because what we have next is remedies and uh, God's response. How does God remedy this? And then how does he respond? Um, But uh, it'll be too much to do it right now. But um, um, any questions? One of the remedies, which is so brilliant, and you'll see this. Hey, let's finish the remedy. We'll do the response later. First remedy, because it'll be shame. Some of you won't be back here next week. And so you'll go kind of, ah, shucks, so I've got all these deceptions. What do I do now? So, so first remedy, and I'll just go over it quickly and perhaps elaborate on it next week. And it's still 10 minutes to 4, because we usually finish at 4. Um, verse, chapter 37, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. First thing you do, 
when you're, when you're facing an onslaught of this sort and deceptions, is seek his face with sufficient humility, not with hostility. What happens often is that because of the constant onslaught, you end up like the dad who's hammering the blue W on the door and screaming out of him, at, uh, screaming out at God saying, if you are real, then do something. There's hostility. Now that guy was not a believer, but you are believers. You need to know your father better. And it's very hard to hear God when I approach him with a degree of hostility, suspicion, or lack of trust. This is what, when you're being attacked over and over again for a long period of time and nothing changes, one of the first things that happens is you develop in your heart a suspicion and a distrust about the father. And once suspicion and distrust comes in, it's very hard to add humility to the mix because it's like oil and water. Seek his face with a humble heart. And a humble heart cannot exist alongside hostility and suspicion. That's the first thing Hezekiah does. And the second thing, and it's so cool, man, is he says in verse uh, 2, look at what he says. He sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. And so the second thing you need to do, guys, is go look at what God has already said over your life. Ah, you have no idea how powerful the prophetic is. How powerful it is. It establishes things in your life. You know, if you want to sustain revelation, you must rejoice over what God has spoken. The way, to, the way to sustain what God has revealed is to rejoice in what God has already said. The way to sustain what God has revealed is to rejoice over what God has already said. The way to sustain what God has revealed is to rejoice over what God has already said. And if he has said it, then, gosh, man, One of the things in this church that this church is so rich in is the words that God has spoken over your life. Which is why Satan desperately wants to silence the prophetic in churches by calling it something from the past or something that has been abused. So we never come under it. And we walk around like people blind, holding hands against a tottering wall that has been whitewashed and is ready to fall. Pointless, eh? The third remedy, verse 3, they said to him, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. Guys, the third thing you do in terms of remedying this situation is take stock of reality. Take stock of reality. Y yes, Rab Shake's liver is perforated. Yes, his nose is bleeding. Yes, his hair is falling out. This is reality. And Rab Shake better take a good look at reality. We don't deny reality. We look at reality and then we speak in the logic and the language of God and agree with what he has said. Romans chapter 4, verse 17 to 20. And Abraham looked at his own body. So Abraham had just finished a shower and he stands in the front of the mirror and he thinks, oh, shucks, this looks like a hundred-year-old's body. And then he sees Sarah on the side and he looks at Sarah and says, oh, man, she's 92. 
and he suddenly realizes that reality just hit home. You got a 100-year-old and a 90-year-old, and you also have the promise looming that you guys are going to have a baby. And so having taken stock of reality, this is what Abraham says, that considering himself and his wife, he realized that there was no way they could have a baby, but he figured that if God had said it, then he was persuaded that God would do what he said. Romans chapter 4, verses 17 to 20. So one of the remedies is to actually take stock of what is happening and then say, this is what the reality is, but this is what the truth is. This is what reality is, and this is what truth is. This is what reality is, and this is what truth is. There is truth, and there's beliefs, and reality. The knowledge of the truth sets you free, but the knowledge of the truth happens here. So people have beliefs about God. People also know their reality about God. And then they look at the truth. And this common intersect is where the knowledge of God comes. And when that comes, you're set free. So you can't say, I believe this is the truth by ignoring reality. You have to acknowledge that this, what is happening is real. And after acknowledging that, look at the truth. And thereby, you come to a place of knowledge. Nor can you say, I believe in Jesus or I believe in God. And just leave it at that. Face the truth of if you believe in God, what should that look like? What should life look like if you believe in God? Why am I writing this down? It's taking up time. And at the end of the day, you still can't read it. But that's just something on the side. The fourth one. Ah, I love this one. And then there's only one. There's five of them. And we've got to finish it in five minutes. Uh, the fourth one is in verse 4 and then in verse 17. In verse 4, <laughs> it's so cool. Eh? Hezekiah is kind of feeling his way through this prayer. So in verse 4, he says, this is chapter 37, verse 4. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. As in, it's possible that God has heard what Rabshakeh has said and it'll provoke him. And then go to verse 17. Now he's getting a little bolder. So in the beginning of the prayer, he's feeling his way around. By the time he gets to verse 17, look at how he's changed. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Where this guy is getting bolder in his prayer, and he says, hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Guys, there's this thing in prayer where you say to God, do you see what they're saying? Arise, O God, let your enemies be scattered. It is, this, it is not saying, oh God, come on, get up. No, it's not saying, get up, oh God, wake up, oh God. No, that's what the disciples did to Jesus when he was sleeping in the boat. Wake up, aren't you bothered that we are sinking? No, that's not the thing. It's saying, listen, oh God, I am as passionate about your name and your glory as you are. And so won't you arise and show them who you really are? You want to see a New Testament prayer like that? Turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 28 to 30. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 28 to 30, 
They've just been beaten up by, um, intimidated by the leaders. And they say, oh God, look at their threats. And stretch out your hand in signs and miracles and wonders. So that we may go out and preach boldly without any fear. Bring this into your life, eh? Hey, your dog does it, huh? I mean, I remember when Kamal and Anne, when Kumba was around. Kamal just um, um, jokingly went and hit Anne. Like, just this way. And Kumba went, and went against Kamal. Why? Because this dog was passionate about Anne's protection. The point being, you have no idea how, how, how jealous God is and what he means when he says, hey Jacob, you're the apple of my eye. What he literally is saying is, anyone comes near your iris or pupil, I'll take care of it. Jealous God, eh? That's one of the first ways he introduces himself to Israel. I am a jealous God. Go figure. That's not the first thing I say, hey, my name's Jacob, I'm pretty jealous, eh? No, but <laughs> that's how he starts. <laughs> I'm Yahweh. I'm a jealous God. What he meant was, you have no idea how possessive I am about you. But till someone knows how possessive God is about them, they really don't appeal to this side of God where you say, arise, O God. And just think of this, guys. Just think of this. What was the one prayer, the one prayer that Israel used to pray in the desert day after day after day when the cloud and the fire used to move or stop? They would just pray one prayer. When the cloud moved, they would stand up and Moses would say these words, arise, O God. And let your enemies be scattered. And then the cloud would settle and they would make camp. And then it would start again. Begin to call out to God saying, Father, this is a body that you bought with your own blood. Look at its condition. And arise, O God, with healing in your wings. Malachi chapter 4 verse 2. And the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in, your, in his wings. And you shall jump around like calf in a stall. Like calves in a stall. Not these calves, the other calf. Like the cow calf. Hey, did I ever tell you I was in um, um, South Africa and they have strange accents, like, just like the British? And so, um, sorry, there were enough from London here today, so I thought I'll take a shot at them. And uh, so, uh, I had such a cool statement they made. No, they, they, they pronounce calf differently or I pronounce it differently. And so the South African guide is telling me that the giraffe goes into the bushes when the giraffe wants to calf. And the way he said it, I'm thinking to myself, really? Because this is like a very um, well-known guide in, uh, who takes you around the South African bush. And I'm saying, really? You mean every time the giraffe wants to cough, it goes into the bush? And he says, yeah, every time a giraffe coughs, it goes into the bush. So I'm turning to Eddie and saying, Eddie, did you know that? That every time a giraffe coughs, it goes into the bush. <laughs> and so what he was trying to say was every time a giraffe coughs, C-A-L-F-S, like gives birth to a calf, it goes into the bush. And that I can understand. But I, in my mind, it was this long-necked animal going behind these short shrubs and going, <laughs> then he comes up. And I'm looking with surprise at this guy. So coming back to the fifth point. Uh, yeah, the last point is, arise, O God. Oh, uh, he, he wants to be Lord, Lord Sabaoth. Uh, and then it gives you boldness, eh? because in verse, um, um, shortly after um, Hezekiah prays this prayer, he says in verse 20, So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, 
that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Lord. And from there on, Israel's whole way of functioning changes. And then next week we'll talk about, so how did God respond to all this? I'm brilliant, eh, how God responds. I'm sorry we've run out of time, guys, but that's something that happens here on earth. And so, um, any questions? Yeah, um, there's a song which says, come as you are. Uh, so how does it work that if God is saying, come as you are, then why should I uh, go into this place of humility and stuff like that? Can't I come as I am? Um, let's put it this way. Jesus says, come as you are, and then change. So that we sometimes forget. Eh? Jesus says, come as you are, just as I am, just as you are, please come. But after that, as I and you begin to relate, I want you to change. So what happens with Christians is we come as we are 40 years from now. We're still coming as we are. When God is saying every t- you can come as you are, but I want you to change after you come and sit in my presence. Because if, if we don't change, then there's no point. So yes, today I might go to him with a degree of suspicion. But next time I go to him, that suspicion should be replaced by a little bit of trust. Because every time it should change. So that's where the difference is. Any other question? No? Okay. Uh, while uh, people are barbecuing outside, if you need prayer for anything, feel free to come. I will pray for you. Someone will be here to pray with you. So let me just pray and then. Father, um, had to rush through that, but I think um, what needed to be said was said, Father. And um, I know this was something you wanted to do because uh, I had much better notes, actually, Father. Um, but um, this is what you wanted to talk about. And all of us here uh, have these deceptions happening. How uh, We're going tr- uh, to crush them underfoot, not let them thrive, not let those shoots grow up and become... Uh, like those plants that start wrapping themselves up and around a trellis. Going to crush them underfoot. Father, I don't know which point applies to whom, uh, but I pray, Spirit of God, that since you um, started this, that you will finish it. And so we're going out now for... I don't know whose idea it was, Father, to have a barbecue in this kind of weather... It's really hot, but uh, we'll survive through it. But um, I just pray that uh, there'll be a lot of talking and friendship, Father. One of the things that I don't want to lose in this church is the friendships that we established in the past. And there are new people, too, and just um, find out more about them. And if there are people who need prayer, I'm sure, Father, that you'll meet their needs because you're a good, good Father. I think that's it, Abba. So thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Heidi, so how does this burger thing?